Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models Episode 17. I'm Steve Kwan. I'm Matt Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent BJJ approach. So today is a continuation of our guard series of episodes. To recap, there are three phases of guard. The first phase is the engagement phase. The second is the maintenance phase. The third is the retention phase. So last week we talked about the engagement phase. This week we're talking about the maintenance phase and you can probably guess what we're going to talk about next week. So uh, the maintenance phase comes after you've engaged with your opponent and the grip fight has settled. So normally when when people think of a traditional jiu-jitsu guard, the picture you have in your mind is probably the maintenance phase. So one person is in the other person's guard. You're both fighting for dominance. Probably there's no clear winner in terms of who has better alignment at this point. And your objective is to secure better alignment while maintaining your own so that you can start trying to pass your opponent's guard. Once you start passing, that puts them into the retention phase. Now, Normally, in the maintenance phase, this means you're trying to find a way to get past your opponent's legs. That's not always the case. If your opponent is playing an instep guard, it's a little bit different. But generally speaking, at this point, your opponent has all of his or her weapons engaged. So two arms, two legs, and to whatever extent is useful, the head. And your job is to start eliminating the usefulness of those weapons by getting around them so that you can start passing and forcing forcing your opponent to start thinking about retention. Matt, anything you want to include there? Yeah, the the um the maintenance phase uh, just because it is now past the engagement phase and we've moved into the maintenance phase that doesn't mean that hand fighting stops uh, generally we still try and fight for control so if I'm in a bottom half guard position a lot of the time what I used to do is I would think about you know how am I going to shoot up and get my underhook uh, the only problem is the person on top any good player is going to know that you know your goal on the bottom is going to be to shoot up and get that underhook position and pot you know either pull him on top into a deep half or come up into the dog fight position so um a lot of the time they guard that underhook really tightly so what i do now is i actually try and get a two-on-one on the other arm the arm that could possibly cross face my head and this serves several purposes one purpose it serves is of course they can't cross face me anymore because um they can't wrap that around my head and thus flattening me out, which is excellent because I want to stay on my side anyways. And another thing that controlling that free arm does is it uh, prevents them from doing any kind of a, of a, of a submission. So whether it be a, a toe hold from the top half guard position or possibly even a Kimura on your, uh, on the arm that you'd normally be underhooking. So getting a two on one and continuing to fight for grips in this uh, position, in position and any guard moving forward is always still something that we want to think about. 
about, the grip fighting never really ends. Um, and that's something important to, to always consider. Yeah, that's a, actually a really, really awesome point. When you're in a, a position like a half guard, for example, which Matt, I think is what you were describing there, you still need to be aware that your opponent is still trying to control your arms. They're still going to be fighting for grips. Grab your head. The difference is now, instead of trying to do so so that they can engage you, they're doing so in a much more threatening manner because now they're starting to think about submissions and they're starting to think about control that they can use to pass or to take the back or to mount. So, And they're close enough to implement certain positions and submissions. Yeah, I I find from, you know, if I'm stuck on the bottom of half guard against a much larger opponent, for me, the, the grip fighting at this point is especially crucial because if I screw that up, then, you know, not only have I lost a grip fight, but I might get Americana or Kimura or something. It's a, it's a risky battle. So you need to be even more mindful once you're in this particular phase. So Matt, as far as the maintenance phase goes, you know, this is where we start talking about guard in the way that most people talk about guard. You know, we're talking about like, oh, there's a Della Hiva guard. There's an open guard, a spider guard. Mm -hmm. These are where you tend to see these different variants. But even these can be more broadly categorized. Uh, Talk a little bit about that. Like, what are the general different types of guard at a high level? The way that uh, Professor Rob breaks it down is there's clamp-based guards. These are going to include guards like uh, a closed guard where you're locking your legs together and uh, like a half guard again you're creating a clamp around your opponent's leg with your leg so um, generally clamping based guards tend to really lock your opponent close to you and and keep them close which is really important because we don't want them getting that freedom where they can now start passing uh next type of guard is going to be like a hook based guard so you're going to use your feet as hooks this could be like a Della Hiva, uh reverse Della Hiva, a lot of different variations um frame based guards which is going to be you know it, depending on on the scenario uh, we're going to talk more about how you can use your spine as a frame, but essentially um, getting getting your hips up, using your spine as a as a way to uh, support your opponent's weight that's coming down on top of you. Also, would knee shield guard be considered a framing guard? Yeah, knee shield guard. Well, and that'll take us to our next one, which would be like a hybrid guard. So a hybrid guard combines different forms of uh, different types of guards. So a knee shield might be considered a framing guard and also a clamp based guard. Right? You could also have like a reverse Della spider which is going to be um, a uh, frame-based guard, with which is going to be a frame on the arm with the spider grip, and then a hook-based guard with the reverse Delahiva. So those are kind of the main generalizations that Rob uses to break down the types of guards, and they're based upon mechanisms, as, as we've already discussed in previous episodes. Um, yeah, and, and also uh, just discussing like layers of guards. So you want to, uh, when, we're, when we're thinking about maintaining guard, we want to think about how we can manage certain ranges. And uh, Ryan Hall was one of the first guys that really sort of hit this home for me. Uh, we've, we've discussed how he talks about different range weapons as actual weapons. Like, you know, your, your, your long range weapon is your feet because they're, that, that, that's a, that's a, the furthest frame from your torso. And it's also one of the strongest. So that would be like your sniper rifle, right? He kind of uses the analogy of modern weaponry to that. But also the, 
you know, just just thinking about the layers of guard, you know, your furthest range would be your feet, then your shins, right? If your opponent gets past your feet and now you have your shins and your knees being frames, then you have your forearms, your elbows and your your hands, right? Or your or your wrists. So so it's very important to understand what's the appropriate frame that you want to use and also how do we prevent our opponent from essentially getting to the the worst position i would say which is chest to chest right mm-hmm. that would be like they've bypassed your uh your all your frames now and now they're right on top of us flattening us out essentially we're out of position at this point we're most likely going to get our guard passed unless we have a a really good deep half or a really good lockdown game yeah so this ties into the 4 on 4 strategy that we talked about in the last episode where when you're playing guard whether you are on the bottom or the top you generally i mean with the exception of your head which there there are a few situations where that that actually can be used but generally you've got four weapons and your opponent has four weapons you've got both of your arms and both of your legs and your goal is to consistently take away your opponent's weapons while maintaining your own and this is i mean ultimately this is alignment right what we're talking about that's how you break alignment is by one by one systematically removing those weapons and that's basically what guard passing is and i I like the way that you talked about how it's kind of like peeling back the layers of an onion there right you know you've got first you've got to deal with the feet and then if you're you know if you get past those well your opponent can pivot and you might still have to deal with the shins or the knees and then gradually you know as, as you get past the legs now there's just the hands to deal with and the doomsday scenario is you know the hands are not a threat the legs are not a threat you're basically just pancaked on the bottom and your opponent is doing whatever they want mm-hmm. so it, it's kind of it, it's not just a matter of I'm, I'm in the guard or I'm past there are all of these subtle variations and and your job is to, as the guy on the top is to kind of peel back those layers and start removing your opponent's ability to use those weapons and it's important when you're when you're maintaining your guard that you understand the type of guard pass that your opponent is trying to implement and what their goals are so mm-hmm. I know that if my opponent is trying to pass really tight with pressure passing, he's probably trying to get to my head. He's probably trying to pin my shoulders flat and use pressure and get chest to chest connection. And that if I can prevent that from happening by always replacing my frames and moving my hips out and keeping good angles uh, and staying in base, I'm going to be successful. If I let them get that chest to chest and flatten me out, now I've got a huge hole to dig myself out of, Mm -hmm. right? If my opponent's going to use a loose base passing, like a float base passing, system uh, usually used on like open guards I want to always keep my opponent off balance right I want to always prevent myself from giving them the ability to get past my frames which will let them achieve that chest to chest connection I always want to move them off balance and of course uh, another another way that your opponent could possibly pass your guard is by submission usually in the form of either a Kimura or uh, a guillotine are the two main ones that I can think of so the way to keep that um, those prevent that from happening is going to be, you know, protect your neck. Don't let your opponent isolate a two on one on your arm. Mm-hmm. Don't let them have wrist control. Uh, don't let them get close enough where <laughs> they can grab your head or they can grab a two on one on your arm. So it's important to understand, like, what kind of passes are my, is my opponent trying to implement on me? 
and what are their goals and how can I prevent them from the getting those goals? How can I deny them the resources they need from those goals? And this all has to, of course, be done in real time when your opponent is attacking you. Yeah. It can be quite a challenge. And, and this is why jiu-jitsu takes so, especially the guard, takes so long to get good at. I mean, so far, there are three phases of guard that we've talked about. There are multiple, myriad different types of guard. And even within those, there are different layers of guard. So it's going to take a long time of mat, uh, just training on the mat and getting experience to get to the point where enough of this is moved into your muscle memory that you can pull this stuff out on the fly. The, the key thing too that you have to bear in mind and the, the difference between a less experienced and a more experienced player is the less experienced player probably has maybe one particular type of guard they're comfortable with and one particular style of passing and if that doesn't work they kind of it's like just running into a wall whereas a more experienced player will fluidly transition between all of these and that is what makes them a nightmare to deal with. That, that's why when you're sparring with someone who is really experienced, the way they pass your card usually feels so effortless for them, <laughs> or it seems like it must be effortless for them. It's because, you know, you, you think you're playing a clamp-based card, and then suddenly the situation changes, and they've moved on to something else, and they're continuously just taking you out of your comfort zone and out of the, out of the situation that you thought that you were in. Yeah, and, and, and for maintenance phase, some of the most important things you can think about, and this, is, this goes for jiu-jitsu in general, but the the uh, the alignment concepts, right? So, like, mm -hmm. if you're on the bottom, uh, the the main one that you're going to need is, I mean, you need them all, right? But let's be honest, the the main one that we're managing here is the alignment of our limbs. So we need structure. to have yeah. we need to have structures, right? And and a lot of the time we're we we're looking to to create connections with our knees and our elbows, which are, you know, I always. I always use the, uh, and we've talked about it last episode is two cats fighting, right? Mm -hmm. Two cats fighting. Generally what they do when, once it hits the ground is they start bringing their lower body up and, and using their, their legs to kick and attack. Yeah. And also what this does is, is protects their, uh, their, uh, their stomach, their vital organs. So I, I love to use this analogy when I'm talking to people, uh, about maintaining your guard is always trying to keep your knee elbow connection because passing the guard is essentially separating the knees from the elbows and then occupying the space between your armpit and the hip, right? So. So if we can always focus on keeping good structures and using our uh, our arms as frames, and sometimes you know if we get into bad positions, we'll use our elbows as wedges to now uh, dig our, our structures back into place. You know what what you have in a knee shield. If your knee is just a few degrees to the inside, your opponent might be able to access that lever and smash you down, putting you in a in a bad position like a folder pass or something. But if your knee is is pretty vertical and 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 uh, and at a particular angle it's gonna be very hard to now shut down that that frame and turn it into a lever so you know really understanding the angles that you need and and also understanding where your opponent's pressure is coming from is a great way to start thinking about you know where should I be aligning my limbs what part of my opponent's body am I trying to deflect or or defend to prevent them from getting to that horrible chest-to-chest -chest connection yeah yeah so tying tying into that um, something that we talked about I believe we talked about quite a while ago there's there's the concept of a kinetic chain basically meaning that uh, you know when you connect your limbs together you can create a closed circuit that is stronger than if you didn't do so you know a common example being that if you've got like you know two of your arms wrapped around like your opponent's leg unless you're actually connecting your hands it's not going to be that strong right so th this stuff does come up a lot when you're dealing with um, guard maintenance both on the top and on the bottom you want to try to 
connect your yourself to your opponent in such a way that your your frames are going to be strong. This doesn't always mean like grabbing your own hand. It can often mean just grabbing on and latching onto your opponent, especially in gi. This is like, you know, this is very critical. You want to make sure that you've got really effective grips. Like if you're the guy on the top and you're trying to pass, you know, for myself, I always want to get like that hip lapel grip where I kind of grab onto the fabric by their hip. If I have that, I have good confidence that I can usually pass or at least threaten with an effective pass. So the ability not just to kind of make, to create frames, but to make frames that are strong and that, you know, often are connected to your opponent and can move with your opponent is, is very, very critical, especially if your opponent is experienced and is moving with a lot of fluidity. Mm-hmm. Um, additionally, a th- problem that I've, I've encountered a lot, you know, it took me a while to kind of figure this out, but especially from open guard, if you start kind of sticking your arms and your legs out, you're probably going to get past. You're just opening yourselves up to arm drags and leg drags. And, and Matt, you know, you talked about this earlier with the elbow knee connection. Um, you know, th- this is kind of an, an, a specific example of what we talked about earlier when we talk about limb coiling. Yeah. Keeping your elbows and your knees in tight, even like touching your elbows and your knees relatively close together is a super powerful way to prevent your opponent from leg dragging you or from, you know, take getting a strong control of a, a lever. I suspect we'll talk about this concept a lot more when we get into retention because it becomes especially important when you're trying to retain to mm-hmm. not be extending your arms and your legs out at awkward angles. But, uh, you know, this comes back to being frugal. If you are kind of getting greedy and you want to like reach out and grab your opponent's leg or try to like, you know, you want to get De La Hiva, so you stick your leg out and get that hook and you try to pull them back in with your leg you got to be careful doing that because you're basically giving them a lever it it is generally better to try to move your whole body in unison like rather than throwing your your arm out or throwing your leg out it's better to shuffle your whole body by kind of like hipping in or hipping out of your opponent so that you're never leaving one particular lever dangling so far that your opponent can take it and use it to their advantage yeah it's 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 really important that like it's almost like we're repeating ourselves but essentially you always want to deny your opponent control of your levers or you know in another way to look at it deny your opponent from turning your frames into levers that they can manipulate and you always want to control their levers so you know like the example I used was from the half guard trying to get a two on one on the other arm and that's that's going to make things really hard for your partner to attack or pass and it's basically going to make them have to grip fight until they can reset to the point of passing again um, and and it's going to serve you well maintaining guard another thing is also how can you use um, like the alignment concepts to be offensive with your in, in the maintenance phase mm-hmm. not just defensive not yes. just not just holding guard but how can we now use this maintenance phase offensively right so um you know, one of the things that Rob says is like, you, you basically, when you get, let's say I pull into a Delahiva, I don't just want to pull you into my Delahiva guard and then, um, start to look for submissions and, and sweeps per se. I actually want to pull you into a, a Delahiva guard Kazushi. So if I can, as soon as I get my grip and get into the Delahiva, I already want to be thinking about how am I going to off balance you? Mm-hmm. And that involves knowing how to off balance you in many different directions. It's not just one setup that's going to be successful, right? Because if your opponent knows how to defend in that direction, then you're going to hit a wall and then he's going to break your grip and then he's going to start passing, right? Yeah, and- so, but if, but 
but if I know that you're going to, you're going to have a few defenses for me, then I can take you one way. And then when you level out, I can now take you the other way. And hopefully I can catch you a little bit overcompensating in which case maybe I can put you on your butt or maybe I can start coming up for a single or something like that. So, um, knowing how to have Kazushi while you're in your different guards and breaking your opponent's base posture structure is going to be, you know, just like everything in jujitsu, that's going to lead you to attempts and give you the resources you need to start being uh, offensive. Yeah. When I started training for the first many years, I would be in guard and I would be on the bottom and I would be thinking, okay, I want to get my submission or I want to get my sweep. And I'd have a move in mind and it wouldn't work. And, and then as I got more advanced and I had more options, I started thinking, well, I got a few options. Plan A is this, plan B is this. And I would alternate between submissions and sweeps. And that would kind of, you know, keep my opponents at bay, but that still didn't work very well, especially not against like really good guys. What I find now my strategy is, is, is I don't even think about like, okay, it's armbar time. I, my goal now is to do an armbar. What I try to do is I just try to continuously off balance my opponent, yeah. basically deny them alignment. I'm not going for a sweep. I'm not going for a submission. I'm just attacking base. I'm attacking structure. I'm attacking posture over and over and over again and gradually tightening the noose. And eventually if you do that, your opponent is basically just going to fall headfirst into a sweep or a submission. Like it's going to get to the point where they have no defense anymore and you can do whatever you need to do because they have no alignment. Yeah. And, and Kazushi is a big part of that. Like a, a problem that a lot of, you know, that I always had with like an arm bar is I would do all of the steps to the arm bar and it's like, okay, my hands are in the right place and my feet are in the right place, but I'm, I'm basically not taking into account the fact that like I'm kind of moving around my opponent, but my opponent still has complete completely perfect alignment. They're just sitting there like a rock. Whereas you're better served actually just rather than trying to get that arm bar, just continuously attacking their base and wobbling them. Even with, you know, you might not be using a like textbook predefined sweep to do so, but you're just trying to attack that arm, trying to attack that leg. And then eventually it becomes easy to, to open that up. Uh, something I noticed looking at like um, high level MMA guys is when they do an arm bar from the bottom, like it, it used to really confuse me looking at like how Fedor or Ronda Rousey would do an arm bar because it doesn't look like what like my instructor shows you know it's not like 12 steps where you grab the arm and it's like super tight and technical it looks really kind of spastic and crazy and and the re and it looks just like one big swinging motion right into an arm bar and I realized eventually that it's because they're not trying to like follow the steps they're trying to establish Kazushi off balance their opponent and then the arm bar just happens right because their opponent has no defense defense in that moment yeah you went again going back to the alignment episodes like breaking alignment is the way to get submission attempts and to finish submissions you have to break alignment you can't attack someone that has posture structure base one th one thing and i mentioned it before in this podcast is like one thing that rob did to change my, the way that i look at guard is he he said don't look at it as a as a sweeping and submission tool look at it as a, a range management tool so if i can use my guard to always just manage distance and break alignment the sweeps and submissions kind of manifest on their own right so um if i can always have you 
off balance. Like let's say I'm playing some kind of an open guard and I always have you off balancing and putting your hands on the mat. That serves a, 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 as a, a di- for different purposes. One thing I know you're not going to pass or you're not going to submit me because your hands can't be focused on controlling my body. They're controlled. They're, they're focusing on active basing and staying on top. Right. Um, and, and another thing is I, I know if I, if I have certain grips, and I'm going for certain Kazushi. If I deny you that active post, then essentially I'm going to sweep you, right? So, mm-hmm. so it's really important to always just think about how can you keep, especially playing open guards, uh, but, but even like a closed guard, you know, all, you always want to rock your opponent's base and posture and always try and understand how to make them off balance. And that's going to give you the, the time that you need to implement your game plan. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, and, um, like, the, knowing, knowing, um, one one of the main things to know when you're playing open guards is, you know, usually you want to control your opponent's hip and the lever to the hip. So like take a De La Hiva, for example, uh, to a tripod sweep, you basically are trying to get that sweep. You need to control your opponent's hip and the, the end of the lever. And this is a concept that also applies to guard passing a lot of the time. We want to control the hip and the lever to the hip. So think think about it this way. Like you always want to control your opponent's hips or torso generally using the foot or the lever to the hip is a really important way to ge- generate leverage and to start looking for sweeps. Mm-hmm. And that's something that's mm-hmm. kind of goes all the way through jujitsu when we're trying to control people. Yeah. It, when you, when you attack your opponent, and actually it's, I'm good. I'm glad that you mentioned this because my open guard game now is almost completely about foot attacks. I, I don't even worry so much. And I, I don't mean like leg locks. I mean, just attacking base by attacking the feet. That's I don't right, even, yeah. I don't even worry so much about what the top of my opponent's body is. Like, I, I don't try to necessarily get control over their arms or even, even the top of the collar. I just find personally being a smaller guy, uh, a lot of the time it's more realistic and more effective for me to attack the, basically to chop the legs out, right? I mean, it's like taking down a tree, you chop down from the base. So I, I find for me what I like to do is I, I like to try to get in underneath them and go for sweeps from there. And yeah, to your point, uh, when you're dealing with, you know, we talked about this in an earlier episode, the legs and the arms have three basic joints in them. You know, you've got the, the joint that attaches right to your core, which in the case of your legs, that's your hip. You've got the intermediate joint, which is the knee, and you've got the bottom joint, which is the foot. If you want to be able to effectively sweep someone from like, if the person is standing up, you're going to need uh, for at least one of those legs, you need to have at least two points of control. It is not sufficient to just grab their ankle and hope you can do something mm-hmm. with that. To immobilize the joint, you need to control two of those, jo- or to immobilize the limb rather, you need to control two of those joints. So that normally means like you need both the ankle and you need the knee itself. Uh, a common example of this is like if you're leg dragging someone, you cannot leg drag someone if you just have their ankle. You need their ankle and their knee. Um, so that that's the way that I like to think of it. Like I try to get in when I, first of all, I try to negotiate the engagement phase, which we talked about in the previous episode. And then once we're in close, my objective is I need to keep myself safe, meaning I'm not giving them anything that they can latch onto while simultaneously attacking their base. Now, a common point of debate is like, is it okay to put your foot on the on the person's hip. This is something that I, I, you know, some people do this all the time where they will like kick away on the person's hip. And then some people say, don't ever do that. Now it's generally considered safe if you have control of their hand, right? Like, you know, let's say in Gi, if I've got your sleeve, 
totally safe for me to put my foot on your hip and kick you away. But people always say, oh, but what if you don't have that? If I kick your hip, you can just leg drag me. Mm. But yet I see high level guys who don't worry about that. I see high level guys who will gladly kick your hip to push you away, even if they don't control that same side arm. Uh, Matt, what is what is your thought on that? Do you feel like it's uh, okay to push away on the guy's leg or hip with your foot? Or do you need that hand control to do it? I'm, I'm not 100% sure exactly what scenario you're talking about. For me, I, I'm always trying to uh, control the sleeve. And another thing you, uh, that I, I sometimes do is I, I have my feet sort of available and I'm hoping that they're going to take a grip because that allows me to reach their sleeve. Yeah, so sometimes it's a bait. It's kind of a bait. Yeah, it can be a cat and mouse game. Um, generally, when I have my feet on the hips, uh, depending on what my opponent's doing, I'm not always trying to push away because that will fully extend my leg and then allow them to maybe manipulate a lever, but more so using it as like a platform that I can use to lift my hips up. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's going to be very situational. Uh, you'll, you'll see a guy like Keenan Cornelius who literally gives his opponent, he, he, he plays off his back, right? He doesn't, he doesn't always play seated up when he plays guard. He plays mm-hmm. off his back w- without any grips, but what he'll do is he'll tether his wrists around his calf so that is the the backs of his hands are on his calves and he's essentially baiting his opponent to grab his sleeves uh to grab his pant legs yeah. and start leg dragging but because of where his hands are he can immediately regrip yeah. the sleeves and, and it plays right into his spider guard and yeah and from there he goes to his worm guard and all that stuff so you know uh, d- depending on how confident you are and how uh experienced you are with your open guard strategy i'm not going to say that that's incorrect mm-hmm. um but uh, I will say that, like, uh, just fr- from a point of view of, you know, people trying to use guards without getting upper body control, uh, I'm just going to plug Rob's Nogi Delaheva DVD because it's uh, it's a really great instructional where he's essentially <laughs> done what a lot of people say is impossible, which is use Delaheva effectively in a Nogi situation. Yeah. I was always told that was a, like, you could use it briefly, but transitionally. Like, it's oh, not yeah. effective. Like, but like yet- up, until, up until I was brown belt, I kind of wrote off the Delaheva in the Nogi situation but now I've realized like he's he's created a whole system of Kazushis from it he's made a whole bu- a whole uh, system of, of of sweeps and submissions from the Nogi Delahiva position and it's extremely effective so if you're looking for an alternative to an inside leg pummeled position such as like an X guard or a single leg X guard uh, th- this is a, a the Delahiva is an outside leg position right so it's a it's a really different way to think about getting underneath your opponent and you uh, you don't always need upper body control. I mean, he does add wrist controls, but uh, it's it's mainly a lower body based open guard system without any control over the upper body, and it's extremely effective. So I recommend anyone check out um, on the Grapple Arts app with Stefan Kesting the Rob Bernacki Nogi Delahiva formula. It's really really changed my game. So yeah, actually, this is an interesting thing to bring up. Um, what you've talked about there is that mo- most of the get underneath the guy guards uh, require you to get inside channel control or inside position, depending on what you want to call it. Basically, meaning like I've got my arms and my legs in between yours. Yeah. You got Ashigarami. Yeah, yeah. So like you've got it. You basically are completely underneath the guy. Whereas in reality, a good passer is not likely to let you get inside channel control because it's devastating, right? Yes. They're, they're probably going to try to step that leg back into like headquarters and that's where Delahiva becomes useful. But yes. the problem is in Nogi, up until recently, people didn't see that as a viable option. So now that that's there, that's actually good to know because I find like, especially in Nogi, 
I want to get inside channel control. I want to get my, my arms in between my opponent's arms. I want to get my legs in between my opponent's legs. And they specifically do not want me to do that. So this is a good option for people who have trouble establishing that control. Mm-hmm. Now, similarly, though, um, you know, if you want a, kind of a, a quick way to get a dominant guard on someone, if you can get inside channel control, that almost always means that you're going to be dictating the pace at some point, as long as your movement is good, right? Uh, and by that, I mean, like, you've got your legs on the inside, you've got your arms on the inside. The opposite of this, of course, is your opponent is basically stretching you out. You know, they, they've got their legs on the inside, which means they can use their leg as a wedge to pry your legs yeah, apart. Not good. Yeah, not good because it locks your hip. That's usually the foundation. That's how knee cut passes happen, right? Exactly. Like One, one of the main uh, issues that I see with people that come from other clubs, they come to my club and then they ask me about guard retention issues. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to watch you retain guard. Most of the time what they're doing when the, when the person on top gets chest to chest connection and, and they're trying to maintain their guard is they have their hands essentially wrapping around them. So they're not as addressing what is the leading edge. Yeah. They're not addressing the force vector and how to create a frame to it. They're just going on what feels natural, which is... Hold the, on for dear life. Hold on for dear life. <laughs> and and, and yeah. there are applications to this. Like yeah. in MMA, that might be a, a valid application because you don't want your opponent to, to posture up and strike you, right? Mm-hmm. So so if strikes are allowed, you might want to tether yourself to your partner, right? You, you might want to control them and keep them close so that they can't land... land um, powerful strikes. But in jujitsu, it's more about creating space. So a lot of the time I have to tell these guys like, Hey, you know, your, your, your arm is literally wrapping around their head and you're holding them on top of you. Yeah. Like you're helping them put pressure on top of you. What you need to do is bump, create some space and then pummel your other hand inside. So now we've created a, uh, a using a wedge, we've created a frame with our arm. That's now going to allow us to create even more space and get our guard back to a place where we can possibly be offensive yeah right? so so it's important to understand when you no, sorry, when you when you want to create frames and generally when your opponent's on top of you crushing you you don't want to hold them right on top of you yeah yeah this is something that uh you know we in the past we've called this defending with purpose which is that hey yes you want to defend yourself but every defense that you employ should be done so with the intent of actually improving your position. It, it, I mean, even, even in a self-defense situation, now granted, I am, I am not a cage fighter, so take this with a grain of salt, but I have been told by people who are much smarter than me that even in those kinds of situations, the old like a uh, bear hug to, to, you know, to kind of protect yourself strategy, um, that, I mean, that works to some extent. It bides you time, but it doesn't do anything to actively get you out of there. It just means that you've committed yourself to this terrible position. It's like similarly, um, the, one of the, the best UFC examples I can think of is the uh, the old Kimbo Slice versus Matt Mitrione fight where Matt Mitrione gets mounted on this poor guy. Kimbo has no idea how to get out. Rest in peace. Yeah, so so he just, all he does is he just like puts his dukes up, defends his chin and just sways like he's head bobbing back and forth. Mitrione is not good enough to be able to finish him, but this goes on for like three minutes before the ref just finally gets bored and calls the fight. Because like, <laughs> like he does, Kimbo doesn't get knocked out or anything. I mean, he's defending himself, but he's doing nothing to escape or advance the position so all that does is it means that he's committed himself to this terrible position um, if you're going to defend you want defenses that will allow you to actually escape the position not just stall out your opponent and by escape position you essentially mean recover guard or stand up yeah yeah you I, recover reverse what what depend it depends on where you are right but basically you want to recover guard you want to sweep 
you want to, or you want to completely escape if it's a bad position, right? Or standing up is always the, unfortunately, the neglected option, but it is always a valid option if you can do it. Yeah. So, like, we'll we'll talk about it more in the in the next episode. But essentially, when you're on the bottom, your goal should always be maintaining guard. Like, mm-hmm. like before you're doing offensive things, you always want to focus on the goal of maintaining your guard. Make your guard unpassable. Because if mm-hmm. you can make your guard unpassable, then uh, your you know your chances of being successful go way up. It's like, I think it was Helio who said, you know, if I don't lose, I will eventually win, which is true. And in this episode, we will not make fun of Helio because it's not April 1st anymore. Uh, by the way, I, I'm glad that everyone appreciated that April 1st episode. I, we got some good feedback about it. So I'm very thankful that that was not misinterpreted the wrong way. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Yeah. I actually had a student that came out to me and he's like, man, you eight minutes in, I'm like, man, what the hell is Matt talking about? He's, he's really changed his views. And, I, and then he's like, oh, and then they were like, wow, you kept a straight face throughout that whole episode. Like, I don't know how you, yeah. how you did that. Actually, on, on that note, you know, we did two back-to-back episodes that were deviations from the formula. We did that and we talked about the Marcus Soros case. Uh, we're open to feedback if there's anything different you want us to try. You know, we, we've got a lot of episodes in the bank and it would be good to maybe shake it up now so if there's anything in particular you want us to talk about or try just let us know we'd love to hear the feedback yeah we'd love to we'd love to you know play around with different topics even if it's not specifically like a mental model or something if there's stuff going on in the jujitsu world and you want us to address it please just send it in and yeah absolutely always looking for ideas Perfect, perfect. Uh, you know, another thing that you mentioned, Matt, just taking it back to the guard, is uh, tethering your body to your opponent. Um, this can be a valid strategy, but also a dangerous strategy depending on the context, right? Common, mm-hmm. common mistake that happens a lot of the time is people tie themselves to their opponent like a backpack or a tether ball, but without breaking their opponent's alignment effectively. Mm-hmm. If you do that, where you like basically you latch yourself onto your opponent, but you have not broken their alignment, things can go real bad for <laughs> you. <for> <laughs> yeah, especially if there's a massive size and strength disparity. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, the triangle power bomb is the most obvious example of this. Hopefully your opponent never does that to you. But even in the jujitsu context, um, just because you're tied to your opponent does not mean you have control of your opponent. Now, it's different if you are tethering that to them in such a way that their alignment is broken. Like a common example is, you know, if I have good Delaheva control on you, yeah, I am, I've tied my legs up around you, but I'm also reaping your knee in such an angle that you can't even turn to face me. That, that's a, that's a positive body tether. A weaker body tether is like, I'm kind of, I jump up on you and I hug you like a koala, kind of, you know, and I'm hoping that you're just going to put me down gently. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that, that's not, even if the rules technically pr- prohibit slamming, that's still giving your opponent yeah. the ability to dictate the pace and do what they want to do. And they might prove to be a lot stronger than you think. Like I have, I have been in situations where I've tethered to my opponent and they've literally just picked me up and rearranged me in midair and put me back down in the position they wanted me to. It's like <laughs> unbelievably embarrassing when that happens. So be aware that if you are going to, um, you know, to tie this to what we talked about earlier, if you are going to clamp onto your opponent, you got to do so or, or hook onto your opponent. You have to do so in such a way that you've got their alignment at least somewhat under control. Or if you don't, you have to make sure that it's possible for you to bail out. Like the, the problem with like the, the triangle guard is a lot of the time, if you don't have their alignment broken, it's kind of hard to bail out of that. So if you're going to play a game like this, um, make sure that you have the option to bail out if your opponent starts trying to pick you up or move you around. Yeah, an example I really like for to 
illustrate what you're talking about body tethering where your opponent posture isn't broken like imagine you're on someone's back with the seat belt but you have oh god i know where this is going (laughs) and you got even if you have a really tight like grip if you're not breaking their posture, usually yeah. what I'll do is I'll drive my shoulder down on the back of their head and I'll even have my head behind their head. That's a really good way to force them almost into a roll and you can mm-hmm. finish the back take. But if, if if you're just like, let's say your head position's off and you have no control over their head and they can posture up, you're, they're essentially just going to dump you, right? Yeah. So, so it's really important to think always about breaking alignment and uh, yeah. that, that goes... That's throughout all of jujitsu. I, I love actually doing this, where especially against white belts, where I pull turtle and then they, they get you know they get tunnel vision and they jump on your back and they tether you and they don't have hooks or anything, but they can't they can't resist. It's like a dog yeah. with a treat, and then I just say Wanagi them from the bottom. It's yeah, yeah, just absolutely wonderful every time. Yeah, and and, and <laughs> let's let's go back to uh, defending with a purpose yeah. for a second. Um, one thing like when when we're learning how to play open guards, we're learning about grips and what grips we should do and. Uh, it's always important to think about like um, you never want to give up a grip unless a they break the grip in which mm-hmm. case you know it might be a smart move to break to let go of the grip before they break it to save your hand and to move on but you, you don't want to just let go of a grip for for any reason right like if a grip is sustainable and you can do something with it it's good to keep that grip until you can transition safely to something else yeah uh, and that just takes experience right when we're when we're transitioning grips and and looking for opportunities make make sure that like you're not just letting go of things because like we discussed earlier all your hands and legs should be assigned to specific tasks that are working towards a goal which yeah. is usually sweeping and mm-hmm. submitting right so if you're playing open guards and you have a sleeve grip and then for, for for no reason you let it go and go for something else that's not really uh it's not really defending with a purpose or being offensive with a purpose or anything it's literally just doing things randomly yeah right? so always understand that there's going to be specific tasks for all of your limbs and generally what they are is to eliminate the ability of your opponent's limbs yeah and this ties back to the episode that we in our last episode where we talked about strategies for dealing with grips uh the, you know the, the flip side of that is when the grip is no longer useful you need to have the awareness of that let go uh, you know a common mistake that happens is like someone maybe they've got head and arm control on you um, and you're able to sweep them and they persist in trying to hold on to your head and arm like they're kind of like bear hugging you from the bottom that's usually not a good idea at that point but some people just they're like I got a grip I'm gonna keep it yeah. uh, we talked in the previous episode about how when the when your opponent moves their body and changes the angle sometimes that grip that was useful is no longer useful yeah. you've got to have the awareness of when that grip is not serving you anymore because if you leave your arm dangling you're giving your opponent a lever yeah so there's a sweet spot here right on one hand you don't want to be just like gripping and ungripping and gripping and ungripping if if the grip is good you want to keep it but on the other hand you have to have the awareness of when that grip has lost its usefulness so that you can move on to something else yeah like a primary example is like i have a guillotine but the guy jumps to the other side so if i if i don't know when to fold him and when to hold him it's like i could end up in a von flu i could end up with my guard getting passed real quick it's important to understand when to let go of attempts and, and whatnot. And, yeah. and also when you're on the bottom playing guard, I, I, I th- we've discussed this before, but like if you're going to go for submissions from your guard, if you don't break alignment, you're most likely going to end up in a bad position. Yeah, like if, if my opponent has posture and, uh, you know, and I don't have my hips 
in their armpit where I've isolated their elbow joint and I go for like an arm bar or a triangle, I'm probably going to get my guard smashed and passed. So understanding how to break down alignment and, and create manifest opportunities from breaking alignment as opposed to going for techniques, mm-hmm. uh, that's that's just going to save you a lot of trouble in the recovery phase. Yeah. And actually on, on that note, um, this, you know, we talked in, in the earlier episode about how if in, in a competition, statistically speaking, whoever gets their guard passed is like, they're going to lose the fight Pretty it, much. It, with very few exceptions. They're going to lose the fight. Something that I've been paying attention to is trying to understand to what extent I'm committed to an individual technique. Like what is the worst case scenario for any technique I do? And I, I, prefer techniques that I can make that make it easier to recover guard from. Um, that's not saying that the other techniques are bad, but it's just saying that because we know that whoever passes guard is probably going to win, guard maintenance is a super crucial part of the fight because whoever wins this phase probably wins it all. It literally is... I think it's even more uh, in, integral to jiu-jitsu than submissions almost. Yeah, like yeah. The, the guard aspect is really what makes jiu-jitsu jiu-jitsu, mm-hmm. right? I mean, we all want to do submissions and stuff, but if you get your guard passed, you know, you're going to be getting a bunch of whack submissions that really aren't... I don't want to say ineffective, but conceptually not sound. Yeah. Strategically, they're not sound. So, like, I always focus on guard retention, guard retention movements, which we'll talk a lot about next episode. But but focusing on making your guard unpassable mm-hmm. and having a diverse set of guards that you can always call upon. That's going to make your jiu-jitsu game a lot more effective than if you have, like, all these submissions that you know from horrible positions. Yeah, yeah. And, and hey... I love my submissions from horrible positions. I do too. Everyone I knows do that, but Matt's right on this one. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're strategically, if I'm going to build a fighter and I want to build them from the from a foundation standpoint, position over submission is is definitely the way to go. Yeah, and I know, and also to a kind of a greater extent, alignment over position. That's right? correct. Two, two things that we've talked about um, before. Uh, so when we talk about, you know, we've talked about alignment over position, meaning, hey, it's like, yeah, you can be in the guard, but really your focus is not just to be in this position, but to attack limbs, to break posture, to break structure, to, to defeat base. And similarly, when we're talking about position over submission, we're talking about how we, you know, we don't necessarily want to just like try and throw up a triangle from here. We want to advance position. If you can get a triangle from guard, hey, that, that's nice and all, but really your primary goal should always be to try to advance position. Uh, on, on the topic of committed techniques, so something that I like to pay attention to, especially when I, I'm dealing with someone who I know is a serious threat to me, um, I have certain techniques that I prefer because I know that um, you know under Murphy's Law, the, the worst case scenario is something I can live with. Like as an example, I I'm on guard. If I have the choice between an armbar, an omoplata, and a triangle, I'm almost always going to start thinking about the omoplata. And the reason why is because if I fail off of the omoplata, the worst, the plan, plan A is I get the omoplata. Plan B is I probably sweep the guy and take side control. Plan C is I can still recover my guard. It's not the end of the world. Whereas if you look at like triangles, especially against a stronger guy, 
Plan A is I get the triangle. Plan B is I probably get stack pass, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so the, the risk is higher. Now, I'm not saying this is the same for everybody. Some people are unreal at triangles and you've got to know your own game, but you also have to, you, generally speaking, especially when you're talking about the maintenance phase of guard, you want to be conservative uh, with moves that open you up to, to potential passes. You want, you want to be aware of what moves are more likely to result in you getting passed versus other moves. So it's just something to think about. And again, this is not necessarily universally consistent. Like if you've got really long and strong legs, maybe you don't have this problem with the triangle and you're confident in it, but it's going, you have to understand and and think critically about your game. Like what is the worst case scenario for every one of my sweep attempts, my pass attempts Mm -hmm. or my, um, and, and my submission attempts. And I always suggest try the safe move first. If that doesn't work, then sure, you can go on and you can try the, the more risky stuff, but always try the safe move first. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point, Steve. Like, uh, I, I think the Oma plot is such an underrated tool. I just started using it when I was like purple belt. Yeah. Like, I've always thought that, oh, they're so hard to finish and all this stuff. But it's like, I, who cares? They're so easy to sweep. <laughs> they're so easy to sweep and they're actually quite effective in terms of finishing. Like, yeah. I've been using them a lot lately because not only do you you're using your leg against your opponent's arm which is a mismatch in terms of like strength and leverage but but also if you if you do it properly you achieve such a dominant angle yes, yes. that that it's so hard for your opponent to start driving back into you so it's like you know even in a real life situation where they, they, you could possibly get hit your opponent can't hit you if you're Oma plotting them. And if you have a really good understand, like my favorite way to play Oma Plata is the re-roll system. Yeah. That, yeah, that yeah. sort of Clark Gracie uses. And Rob, Rob's actually the guy who showed me what to do from there, but it's based off what Clark does. And he, he goes to the Oma Plata and basically gets into base so that you're not going to get flattened from there. Cause sometimes if you just try and roll the guy, but you don't get into base, the guy can steamroll over top of you and get out. But if you come up to your elbow and you get into that, like Captain Morgan's position, yeah. there's tons of options from that position. So I think, I think the Oma plot is like such an effective way yeah. to to redirect your opponent, get that dominant angle, and isolate a lever. That's like it's even more effective than an, an armbar in I terms agree. of isolating a lever. You get so much if you do it properly, you get so much rotation over the shoulder that it's like you really keep your opponent in check. And then if you can get on top, there's monoplata, there's you know backstep triangles. You could just abandon and stay on top. It's such a great position. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. Uh, I think that, and I really suggest that everyone out there, odds are you don't use the omoplata enough. I mean, I don't know who you are, but odds are it's not a big enough part of your game. Uh, I think that one of the main strategies for passing guard, it, like really what you're, the best way to try and pass someone's guard is to get a dominant angle somehow. And um, so that's, it's super, super critical like guard in a lot of ways it's about that four on four limb game we talked about but one of the best ways to actually start beginning the pass is to get a dominant angle on your opponent because then they can't do anything to you on that topic when we're talking about these submissions yeah with with the arm bar you you can you're kind of getting an angle but they can also turn back towards you and stack you with the triangle even if posture yeah with the triangle even if you're turning to the side like you should they can still turn back towards you but with the omoplata you are beside the person there they have no chance of getting back towards you um the one thing about the omoplata that you do need to be careful about back 
back on the topic of body tethering is when you, if you're going to start to get up, like you want to make sure that you actually have your opponent broken down because mm-hmm. your opponent can actually lift you up and For spike sure. you from there. So that's why the mechanics of like, a, I, like I like to make sure there's different ways to do this, but Matt, I know that the way that you do it is you kind of lace your legs under the person's head and you start to roll. I, yeah. I actually like to put my feet on the person's head and kick them away. Yeah, I know you, you, you need to break their, their structure and their posture because, or well, sorry, you need to break their posture specifically because if they can still posture up, you know, the the worst case scenario is that they can spike you to some degree. But that that is very easy to counter once you're familiar with it. Yeah, and the omoplata definitely changes depending on the size of your opponent. It changes if you're gi or no gi. If, in the gi, you have so many more options. Yeah. Like the lapel grips or collar grips you can take with the omoplata yes. can be really effective. Yeah. Uh, omoplata with the far sleeve. I know you like that one a lot. Like yeah. You can, like that's a really effective attack attack from the spider guard so yeah you know there's so many variations of the omoplata and of course where there's omoplatas there's also going to be arm bars and triangles yeah. so the, and kimuras so it's really effective yeah. and, and back on the topic of how really your goal in guard should be to break the other guy's alignment part of the reason omo, the omoplata is powerful is because it's a great alignment break it's actually probably better as a as an alignment break and a sweep than as a submission so to your point matt if it doesn't work when the guy starts to recover he is not going to have proper alignment for a second there. And, and that's why omoplatas are such a great transition into triangles and into arm bars. For because sure. they, when your opponent does start to maneuver back towards you, usually they're giving up like a, a triangle right there. And you, and mm-hmm. if you want an arm bar, you can transition to it. Mm-hmm. it. It is a very, very powerful submission. And yeah, like you mentioned, in the gi, there's even more options. Uh, another thing I like about the omoplata though, especially is, and I know that this isn't really the omoplata podcast, but it's a great example. Uh, one of the things I I like about the omoplata is that it I find personally it's one of the submissions that is more effective against larger opponents whereas some of the other submissions like triangles they they tend to be reduced in effectiveness against larger opponents mm-hmm. you I mean you are using your leg but but when you get into the finishing stages you're using your whole body versus their arm yeah and um, yeah a, a lot of it relies on how you how you keep the shoulder rotated while you enter the omoplata and how you maintain your base and and are able to transition with them i find mm-hmm. like it's i find it really hard to throw the omoplata down come up and finish all in one sequence like that's kind of a pipe dream i feel mm-hmm. uh even though that's how it's traditionally taught a lot i find it's more of a rallying position where i throw my leg over then i know my partner's going to try and scramble and roll if he's any good he's going to have some kind of defense right so it's up to me to sort of follow him and get ahead of the sequence so that hopefully I can now re-roll maybe even multiple times and then end up in a position where it's time to now finish. Um, yeah. Back, back to what we were talking about earlier, just in terms of like, uh, we were talking about layers of guard and all that stuff and and uh, frames and, and wedges and stuff. I, I, we, we also didn't discuss how how important the spine is as a frame. Ah, yes. Um, because, because we tend to think of frames as with our limbs and they are. Like a lot of our framing comes from our extremities and and getting our elbows into places and then using our forearms and our knees and 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 being aligned that way but but it's really important to also look at your spine as a frame uh for, we'll, we'll discuss gramby rolls in the next episode when we're talking about recovering and guard retention movements and things like that but but if your opponent let's say is uh, double under like stack passing you. Uh, if, if you allow them to stack you and fold your hips over, you're, you're 
a lot of the time where they're going to start entering uh, into back takes and passes from an inverted opponent, right? So uh, one great thing like Leandro Lowe does is he kind of, he rides the biceps and chops his, his feet down and gets his hips up and sometimes even balances on the top of his head. Mm. But what he's doing is he's creating really strong posture and making his spine uh, a really formidable frame, right? So, so a lot of the time, even if your opponent is trying to pass your legs in the open guard, just having your your hips up and making your spine straight is it makes your legs as frames way more strong and makes them way more mobile in terms of like top stepping and defending leg drags and stuff so always think about your spine as the it essentially is the most important frame in your body and the most strongest frame in your body and also your your head is a lever to that spine yeah yeah so we talked earlier i think way back in like episode I don't even remember. We talked about the anatomic hierarchy, which is basically that the, you know, out of all of the different weapons that your body has, your core is the strongest. And a common mistake that people make is they neglect to engage their core. They're so busy trying to, you know, tie up the, using their arms and their legs to tie up the person that they don't realize that you can use your core muscles and your hips and your spine as an offensive weapon too. And in the case of a guard, like, hey, if you want, if you want an example of this, you'll hear a lot of people tell you, like, you know, hey, when you're in the guard if you're having trouble in a lot of situations the answer is sometimes to lift your butt off the ground the reason why that people tell you to do that is because it forces you to engage your spine as a frame like a common example of this is if you're if you're in closed guard or you have closed guard on your opponent and you're having trouble breaking them down and they're it's way too easy for them to kind of like get up and move around try just lifting your butt off the ground basically having your shoulders on the mat as your base and then having your butt off the ground because by doing that it forces your spine to, to align and straighten. And then you can use your spine as a range management tool. And by doing that, that also allows you to start isolating your opponent's arm. Because if he's grabbing onto your collar or something, then he's got to extend that arm out. So um, there, remember that anatomic hierarchy. You you want to engage your spine and your core wherever you can. And, and understand that the spine, you don't think of it as a frame, but it is the most powerful frame that you've got. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and of course, you know, your feet are very powerful frames. Yeah. Those are the strongest frames that you're... you're uh, out of all of your limbs. Of all your yeah. limbs, yeah. Because the leg pressing movement is very, very powerful. But but uh, always engage your posture as well. That For every position, no matter what you're doing, any activity really, mm-hmm. your posture can be in, in uh, the most effective position or it could be in an ineffective position, which is going to result, result in a lot of inefficient use of energy so yeah, yeah. in jiu-jitsu we're always trying to stay efficient definitely always consider the alignment of your posture your base and your yeah and it, it also makes it easier for your opponent to to break you down right if your posture is not as good as it yeah. could be then everything falls apart pretty quickly it's a lot easier to wobble you off base um, a lot of the times it also results in you exposing more of your your targets than you would like to right if your posture isn't good in some situations and that means your opponent may have better access to your arms or to your neck which you never want if you can avoid it so and and, but also understand that good posture varies tremendously depending on the circumstance it doesn't always mean my back is up straight and my head is up high or my my chin is down it's very context dependent it basically means I can effectively engage my spine and, and in this position to generate force and my head is not a liability. That's basically yeah. what effect, like effective posture means. Yeah, and you're free to move. So yeah. like if I'm in bottom side cross face, 
I have no movement with my head. My, my opponent can use that to either maintain a side control or use it to pass a half guard, right? Mm -hmm. Because, uh, yeah, my head will be turned a specific way. So you need to have that freedom to be able to, to maintain a, a strong posture. Awesome. So good conversation today about maintenance. Matt, anything else you want to add on the topic? Uh, no, maybe just um, I, again, I'm going to plug one of Rob's apps, like we did, early, uh, like I did earlier with the Nogi Delahiva. The um, the BJJ Formula has a guard app, and it's an excellent resource for a lot of just concepts and guard retention movements and things that you need to think about when we're when we're planning a a guard game, especially if you're an instructor and you you aren't really sure how you want to teach these phases of guard and and uh, the movements how they should go along with it. I, I mean. Rob's Rob's one of the best instructors in Canada. Definitely check out um, his guard retention app as part of a four-part series, uh, the BJJ Formula. Yeah, it's, you can get it on uh, the Grapple Arts app. I think you can also order it directly from Stefan Kesting's website. The If you uh, like and appreciate the alignment, phases of guard, and types of guard concepts, these come from Rob, and they're covered on that DVD set. That's how. Uh, so that's actually where I learned a lot about them. So I, I recommend them as well if you want to dig a bit deeper into this yeah and if you're looking for an online academy to try there's a lot of them out there um the mendez bros there's keenan online marcelo garcia in action being probably the biggest one uh, rob's got one called bjjconcepts.net and by far it is the best organized in terms of content um I've mentioned before the videos are quick, they're to the point, they're all very well uh, organized in such a way that you can reach exactly what you're looking for. Whereas my only criticism of like the Mendez Bros website, of course, the techniques and the roles are amazing, but the it's uh, it's just like a big library where everything, yeah. you know, you can't really, uh, you basically just have a search bar and you type it in there. Nothing is organized and... Um, nothing is conceptually placed systematically so rob's uh, website bjjconcepts.net is really uh, a great online uh, resource for jujitsu so yeah. i recommend that as well it's actually a, an interesting thing that we were talking about earlier with our own website you know as we build up a, a big library and database of these mental models we have to start asking ourselves well how do we make it easy for people to digest them like mm -hmm. we don't want to just have like a big list of these things so that's something yeah. that we've been thinking about as well so just to recap in, in this episode, we talked about the phases of guard. The phases are engagement, maintenance, and retention. This episode, of course, was all about maintenance. Um, maintenance generally means like, hey, when you're thinking of kind of a, a textbook guard where people are, you know, battling for dominance, usually that's the maintenance phase. The types of guard we talked about, we talked about how most guards can be classified as like a hook guard, a, a clamp guard, a frame guard, or a hybrid of those. We talked about the different layers of guard how you know you start off with the feet and then once you get past the feet you're now trying to pass the shins and then the knees and then the hands and then the forearms and then the elbows and it's like peeling back the layers of an onion we talked about the theory of alignment which ties of course all of this together and we discussed extensively in our first episode we talked about kinetic chains meaning that if you can anchor your your arm or your leg to something like your other arm or anchor it even to your opponent it's going to have stronger control we talked about limb coiling basically in this context meaning you don't want to leave your arms and legs dangling so that your opponent can use them as a lever we talked about controlling the distance really this is the purpose of guard in a lot of ways you know making sure 
sure that you are the one dictating where the distance and where your opponent can engage you. We talked about inside channel control, also known as inside position, meaning, you know, trying to get your arms and your legs inside of your opponents, like in a butterfly guard, which generally means that you're going to have more control over them than they do of you. And generally means you have better structure. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. It makes it way harder for your opponent to break your structure and it makes it way easier for you to break your opponents. Yeah, it's it's the strategy that Gordon Ryan has become so famous for. Same with Eddie Cummings. These guys always try and get the inside position leading to uh, really effective leg locks. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we talked about defending with purpose, meaning that when you are defending, don't just defend for the sake of defending. Every defense you employ should be done so with the intent of improving your position. We talked about body tethering, how you generally don't want to latch onto your opponent unless you are confident that you've broken their posture and structure in such a way that they cannot just powerbomb you. Yeah. And, and that it serves a purpose. Yeah, like yeah. If, if they're trying to strike you, then it's, you know, then it makes sense to hold them close to you. If, if, if there's no striking involved, you're literally just helping them be heavy on top of you. Exactly, exactly. It should always serve a purpose. You shouldn't do it just because. We talked about grip inversion, which uh, we don't need to go into here again. We've covered extensively in the last episode. We talked about committed techniques, meaning that given the opportunity, you probably want to favor techniques that have uh, less risk of going catastrophically wrong. We talked about alignment over position, meaning that it, rather than thinking of jiu-jitsu as a game just of positions, you want to think of it as a game of breaking alignment. So again, when you're in guard, the, the focus should be, think of it not so much as just advancing through different types of guards, but of just continuously attacking and defeating your opponent's posture, structure, and base. We talked about position over submission, meaning, uh, you know, yeah, it's, if you can get a submission from guard, that's great, but it is generally a better strategy to try to advance the position to get into scenarios where a submission is more likely and easier to achieve. We talked about dominant angles, meaning that a, a big strategy for passing guard is really to try to get to a better angle on your opponent where you can you are facing them and they're not really able to effectively face you because that means that they can't effectively employ their weapons against you. And we talked about the anatomic hierarchy, meaning that you're, there are some parts of your body that are more powerful than others. In this context, of course, your legs are very powerful, but your spine and your core are even more powerful. So be mindful of that. It's easy to forget about that and to fail to engage your core, but you always want to use your core if you can, especially as a frame when you're managing guard. Mm -hmm. Good coverage of the episode here. Uh, before we go, one quick question to talk about, or actually maybe it's not quick. I guess we'll find out. So we were asked for some strategies for adapting your game plan against various body types. Um, everyone asks this question at some point, but basically like how do you deal with someone who has, uh, you know, maybe they're smaller than you or bigger than you, or they have short limbs or they have long limbs. Like, do you have to make any significant adjustments if your opponent makes those you know has a different body type like what what exactly has to change and how do these mental models apply um matt do you want to lead off or do you want me to i mean you de you definitely have to make some adjustments like if you i find i find if i roll with a guy who's bigger than me but he has like really crazy grips and we're playing in the gi i have to be very mindful of him grabbing me yeah so generally what that means is i'm going to be a lot more stingy and, and careful about how I'm controlling his sleeve 
sleeves. I'm going to make sure that instead of just getting to my favorite position, getting into my favorite guard, I'm going to look to isolate that wrist, most likely with a two-on-one. Mm-hmm. And then from there, I'll look to get a dominant lever off that. And if he breaks that grip, I'll probably try and reset and get that grip again. Um, someone who's someone who's longer than me, you know, I mean, it is, it is longer levers. It depends if we're talking about like someone who's longer than me or someone who's longer than me and also like a hundred pounds bigger than yeah. me. It, it does change a little bit, but uh, pretty much for me, I always try to nowadays anyways, I try to always prevent being underneath a bigger pro- opponent. Um, That's interesting. Cause I always want to get underneath. A really? Opponent. Well, I, I, I I I've done it I've done both ways and I find that if I'm in like bottom half guard on a really big opponent sometimes things can go bad now if you're, oh, yeah, you're yeah. talking about getting the inside I'm, position, I'm talking about like inside position yeah, yeah. now that Pati- makes sense particularly like getting like x guard or single leg x, x guard or single leg x yeah because because of a few knee injuries I've had recently I I I steer away from certain positions against guys bigger than me and one of them is uh single leg x on one side mm-hmm. uh but that being said, I don't want to pull someone who's really big on me, really big into my half guard necessarily, because I'd rather move around them. And that comes from the engagement phase. That comes from staying mobile and and kind of refusing to allow them to be on top of me. And if it takes the whole round, then that's okay. Yes. <laughs> Sometimes with, with bigger guys, you need to come to terms with the fact that it's going to take you a lot longer to get where you want to go. Yeah. And there might be some really bad speed bumps that you hit along the way. <laughs> you yeah. know? Also, like, uh, it, it, you know, if I'm going against someone who's much bigger, I'm I'm probably going to, like I said, be more stingy and not let a lot slide mm-hmm. because I know that that's going to have massive repercussions later on down. If I let them pass my guard, it's going to be way harder to get my guard back against someone much bigger than someone my own size. So someone my own size, I might be a little bit more playful and willing to grip exchange a little bit, whereas someone who's bigger and uh, and good, I know that that's going to be hard if I lose those first few phases of guard to to recover. So I'm going to try to win every every battle I can. Yeah. Yeah, from my pers- lazy. <laughs> <laughs> from my perspective, the the thing about what we talk about here, these mental models, is that they're general, so they should apply to almost all cases, regardless of whether your opponent is big or small, or they have short limbs or long limbs. Uh, so they should apply regardless. But the reality is that executing them is going to be easier or more difficult depending on the circumstance, and and every circumstance is different. So a good example, Matt, that you brought up. Is is grip fighting. You know, we've talked extensively about how grips dictate position. Now, against someone my own size, if I lose the grip fight, maybe it's not the end of the world. It's gonna, it might be easier for me to eventually recover. But against a bigger person, if I lose the grip fight, it can be catastrophic. So, the mental model doesn't change, but the amount of risk for me changes quite a bit. So that's a situation, Matt, like what you said, where like, hey, the strategy remains the same, but there are certain mistakes that become much more dangerous to make if you are playing against a bigger guy. Um, against Again, against a bigger guy, another thing that I find is super important is uh, limb coiling, you know, keeping my arms and my legs in tight. I And not even just when I'm on the bottom, but like, hey, if I'm, if I'm standing with the guy or if I'm sitting, if I'm in seated guard, I never want to extend an arm or a leg too much because I know that a bigger guy can get a lot more leverage on me a lot faster, even if they don't have proper grips, they can still do it. So I've got to be very, very prudent there. Um, Staying loose and relaxed is also way more critical against a big guy because 
unfortunately, if you're used to sparring against guys your own size, even the best of us, sometimes we, we use power to and explosiveness to escape. Against a big guy, that's never an option. And it's much easier for them to use gravity to burn you out. So it's super critical to not burn out your muscles when you're supporting that weight from the bottom. Um, those are kind of the main things that I I try to think of when I'm dealing with a big guy. And of course, body tethering. Like I generally, unless I know I've got a dominant, dominant control, I don't like to tie myself to my opponent if they're that much bigger than me. Now, when it comes to if they're like really long and lanky, um, honestly, length, like if the guy's got like freakishly long arms and legs, that honestly, I don't find to be that much of an obstacle. And maybe it's just my particular passing style. Uh, like usually when you're talking about people who have really long arms and legs, you're probably talking, what you're probably asking is how do I prevent this spidery mofo from like sp- putting me in spider guard and triangling me? That's probably what you're talking about because those are normally the cases where that kind of thing is going to be an advantage for the person. Or, or how do you prevent them from like knee shielding me? Um, the- it's easy. You pull guard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that's actually one option is just pull guard to get under them. But even if you're in those positions, positions. Um, this best strategy for dealing with, uh, for example, spider guard or dealing with a good, a good knee shield is just change the angle. Like if the guy on the bottom is, has you a knee shield and you can't get past his knees because his legs are like longer than your entire body. I find that all I do is I just get up and I change the angle a bit and I force that guy into headquarters. So rather than being in a knee shield position or, uh, in spider guard, but uh, you know what you do basically, if you just take whatever, take whatever, arms he is spidering you with grab onto the either his arms or grab onto his his leg fabric and then change the change the angle like basically use hip movement to adjust the angle and change the angle eventually you should be able to to defeat that um i find that that is not as much unless the guy is unreal good at spider guard i can usually deal with that um triangles is basically just about defensiveness like when you're in someone's guard um just always keep solid posture don't let your arms dangle out there and really that's I mean, that's just having good posture. Again, as as we talked about in the previous episode, prevention is more important than looking for a cure, right? If, you're, if your focus is on how do I escape a triangle once it's locked in, that is not an ideal place to be. You are far better off just trying to maintain posture and protect yourself all the way through. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, that, that concludes this episode then. Next week, we're going to be talking about retention. That's going to be the end of our guard series, our three-part episode or series on guard. Hopefully, you found this useful. Uh, again, if you do have any questions or comments, please do share them. We're always looking for feedback and we're looking for new questions and topics to cover on the show. Thank you again for listening. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it.